All right, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. Elisha, could you turn me down a little, a little loud? Thank you. All right, we are in Ruth. There is much here. Primarily be in chapter 2 today, and it's a long chapter, so we're going to kind of hit it as we go through. We're actually going to pick up in chapter 1 towards the end of that. I skipped over that a little bit last week, so we're going to uh, pick that up. If you're looking for Ruth in your Bible, you've got the first five books, and then Joshua Judges, and Ruth is it's a little book sandwiched between Judges and Samuel. So if you get to Samuel King's Chronicles, you've gone a little bit too far. You need to go back to your left. Joshua Judges, you need to go a little bit to your right, and you'll find the book of Ruth. So, before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need it as much as these uh, two Moabite widows needed it. And we need to be reminded of your steadfast love. We confess that we often attempt to make sense of life without taking the time to see you at work, without trusting in your providence. And so we mess things up. We take wrong turns. We don't look to you until we stop looking to ourselves. So help us this morning to look to you first, to sit under your word, to hear from you. Make this word a light to our path and a lamp to our feet and lead us to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So normally, it's... Uh, not considered polite to read someone else's mail. Uh, in fact, it's against the law. It's considered an invasion of privacy, and it carries some uh, pretty strict penalties. Um, and every year, though, there is a post office employee who breaks the law again and again and again. And uh, mostly because that's her job. And uh, one year, in doing so, she learned something very important. You see, she works at the dead letter office in Washington, D.C. And her job is to read all the mail that can't be delivered. And hopefully in opening the letter, she'll find out where it's supposed to go, and then she can send it there. And, uh, but the dead letter office actually fills up around Christmas time. That's the biggest time of year. Uh, that's the peak season for the dead letter office, apparently. And one Christmas, this woman who works there realized something that she has seen literally thousands of letters requesting things and asking for this and asking for that uh, for Christmas. But in all that time, among the thousands and thousands of letters that she had, she'd only seen one letter thanking someone for a gift received. And how true this reflects our relationship with the Lord sometimes. We are quick to ask and slow to give thanks. We find it easy to list our requests, but find it hard to give our gratitude. Jesus saw this same problem a couple thousand years ago. On the way to Jerusalem one day, he met ten lepers in a village, and they asked for mercy, and he miraculously healed them. But only one, and a Samaritan at that, uh, came back to thank Jesus. And I don't know if you can remember what he said. You can find it in Luke chapter 17. It says, Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? 
was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. Too often we find ourselves in the company of the ungrateful nine. But I doubt we would have found Ruth and Naomi there. They wouldn't have joined that company because in this morning's passage we get a wonderful example of how to respond to blessings. But we don't start with the blessings. We start with the providence of God. The providence of God, I'm going to start reading, uh, contrary to what your bulletin says. I'm going to back up a little bit. Start with chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. And read through chapter 2, verse 3. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. As I said last week, Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. She says, Do not call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the oars of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So even though they're now in Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi are still poor. They're still poverty-stricken. They arrive too late to plant, so they have nothing to harvest. They can't steal the harvest from other people. And Naomi's much older and can't help much. This context, much older, is probably 50, give or take, five years. Didn't have the same kind of lifespan that we have today. But the burden fell on Ruth to provide. And it's in the midst of this difficult situation of these two women both widows, one's a foreigner, very poor, no food, and they come back to Bethlehem, and yet we see that Ruth lives by faith in the providence of God. She lives by faith in the providence of God. First, we see that Ruth takes the initiative. She goes out to the fields and gleans, which is simply an Old Testament uh, term that meant to follow behind the reapers and pick up the leftovers that had fallen on the ground. And uh, practically speaking, uh, it's provided for in the Old Testament law. It's kind of the uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern welfare system. So the law says you have to allow people to come in and glean what's left behind. And so this is a way for the poor to get food. But it's a subsistence living. It's very basic subsistence living. The reapers don't leave that much behind. And what they leave behind is usually the stuff that's not very good. 
So they take like all the best of the harvest and they leave a little bit of the worst behind. So it's really, it, it's sort of the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of dumpster diving. To give you an idea of what this really is talking about. But second, Ruth not only takes the initiative, it forces her to depend on others. She goes looking for a field where she can gather grain. Verse 2, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She knows that normal gleaning isn't enough. She needs to find a landowner who would be kind and generous to her. And this, in turn, is a risky venture. It's hard to overemphasize how risky this is. Remember, A. Ruth is from Moab. She risks not being welcome in the fields at all because she's a foreigner. It's dangerous. She risks suffering verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse at the hands of the field workers. This is the point where the rubber hits the road. Is Ruth willing to act on her commitment of faithfulness to Naomi? Gleaning is hard, back-breaking work. But Ruth lived by faith, and so into the fields she went. And as we said in verse 2, we're told that Ruth looked for someone in whose sight I shall find favor. We've heard that word favor before. Unmerited, unearned favor, or what the New Testament calls grace. But remember, Ruth is doing this as a woman, a widow, an alien, and poor. Nobody needs grace more than Ruth. And so we see that Ruth lives by grace, fully depending on the providence of God. And God's providence is at work. She obviously has found favor in God's eyes, uh, because verse 3 tells us, she, she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. Notice this. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just happened. It's no mere accident. It's no mere coincidence. This is a sign of God's hand at work. Of all the fields of Bethlehem, she happened to come to this one. She found favor with God, and he brought her to someone else she'll find favor with, Boaz. And so we see right from the start that Ruth lived by faith in the providence of God, and then she lived by grace, fully depending on that same providence. But now we have a new character enter into the story, Boaz. And Boaz comes into the story as a type of Christ, meaning he's an Old Testament figure whose actions and character point to Christ. And so we need to then look at the protection and provision of Boaz. So I know, it's hard. There's two blanks in the next point. Protection and provision of Boaz, starting at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. 
but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and drip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull some out from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, of barley. I'm sure you fully understood all of the agricultural references there. So we have so many farmers in the congregation. So before we look at what Boaz did, let's look for a moment at who Boaz is. Verse 1 tells us that Boaz is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Literally, the Hebrew says he's a man of standing. What a wonderful thing to be known as. The same Hebrew phrase is used of Gideon as a mighty man of valor. It's used of Levi as a man of substance. It's used to signify wealth, status, and influence. It also carries a sense of moral worth and virtue. So in Boaz, we're introduced to a man of integrity, uh, a man of influence, and a man of courage. And who wouldn't like to be known throughout all of history as a man or a woman of standing? Someone like Boaz. So now we know a little bit about who he is. Let's look at what he did. First, he gives Ruth permission. Look uh, in verse 7. Ruth asked permission to glean in his fields. She doesn't have to do that. Gleaning is already allowed under the Old Testament law. But she's looking for grace and favor, and so she asks first. And in response, Boaz not only gives Ruth permission to glean, <coughs> but he asks her not to glean anywhere else. He tells her to stay and glean only in his fields. To Boaz, Ruth's not a burden, but she is a blessing. And he makes it seem like an honor that she has chosen his fields to glean in. Second, we see that not only does he give Ruth permission, but he also gives Ruth protection. He also gives her protection. He says, verse 9, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He lets her know that she's going to be safe working in his fields. He's told the men in the fields not to touch her. Apparently, physical abuse is a real threat to the women who had to go out in the fields to glean. 
And a woman working by herself without having a male head of household for protection is very much in danger of being physically abused or sexually assaulted. Now you can think this is typical behavior of 3100 B.C. But I'm telling you, there's more than one woman in this room that can tell you this is far too often typical behavior still today. Years ago, there was a front-page article in the Washington Post about a, young, a, a number of young women working in American manufacturing plants in Juarez, Mexico. And they were regularly subjected to the harshest types of physical and sexual abuse. In fact, well over 800 young women have been raped and murdered in Juarez in the last 22 years. All women, usually teenagers, who left rural homes in search of work to help support their families. Now, factory workers in Juarez work for an average wage of $422 a month. But these reports document that many of these young women work for an average of $4.20 a day. I mean, that's below our minimum wage per hour. $4.20 a day. And there are similar stories being repeated today, 2015, throughout parts of Africa and the Middle East and much of Asia. So being a foreign woman working in the fields brings real fear to these women. And it's no different for Ruth 3,100 years ago. She has every right to be scared. But right away we see Boaz removes this fear. He brings Ruth under the protection of his word. He says she is not to be touched. Later in verses 15 and 16, he tells the men not to reproach her or rebuke her. So she's not to be verbally abused either. It seems that Ruth has found favor in the eyes of Boaz. So let's look at how uh, Boaz provided for Ruth. First he says, verses 8 and 9, Glean here, there's no need to glean elsewhere. There's enough for you here. Second, he tells her if she gets thirsty, she can drink from his water jars. You understand, when he talks about reapers and gleaners, the reapers are the paid employees who are doing the harvest. The gleaners are the poor people following behind the paid employees, basically picking up the leftovers. So all the stuff that, in a sense, the company is providing, food and water, is for the employees. It's not for the poor people following behind. But here he says, you can follow the reapers and you can drink from the water jars where my men are, are drawing the water. I mean, working in the fields is essentially a very hot, sweaty business. Field workers, uh, they may get uh, mercy from the boss, but they don't get any mercy from the sun. So here, Boaz exceeds Ruth's request. Not only can she glean here, but she can quench her thirst too. And third, we see the Boaz fed her at lunchtime. Verse 14, he invites her over essentially to what we would call the company table. And he gives her bread and wine and roasted grain, and we're told that she ate all that she wanted. So again, Boaz goes beyond the requirements of the law in order to provide for Ruth. 
And finally, Boaz arranges for extra grain to be left for Ruth. He tells his men to take out some of the good grain that they've already reaped and leave that for her as well. And for the third time, Boaz's actions exceed both Ruth's request and the requirements of the law. And what we're seeing here in Boaz is an indication of his grace and generosity. He goes beyond the letter of the law to demonstrate the spirit of the law. He shows us that the love of God is expressed in the care of those who are less fortunate than we are and who have less than we do by protecting and providing for them. And in so doing, Boaz is showing Ruth and us something of the character of God. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, Ruth is or Boaz is demonstrating what that looks like in the life of Ruth. To do more than we ask or even think. Look at what's happened here. First we see her physical needs are met. Not only is she provided for in the fields with Boaz's permission and protection and provision while she's working, but she's allowed to glean so much that verse 17 says she collected an ephah of barley. You all know what an ephah is, right? It's actually really important. An ephah is approximately half a bushel of barley. You don't know what a bushel is either, right? A half a bushel of, of barley, technically three-fifths. And, and it's set that way because that's what you could carry essentially in the sack that you carried behind you as you were picking up the barley and filled your sack. You could basically fill it with about three-fifths of a bushel, and that amounts to about 29 pounds essentially the size of a two-year-old. The key here, what's important, is the average wage for a field worker, for the reapers, the paid employees, is about two pounds a day. So that's, that's food for one day, that's wage for one day. So essentially, Ruth earns two weeks' wages in a single day. And in Boaz, Ruth has indeed found the grace and the favor that she seeks. Second, we see her emotional needs are met. Verse 10, she says, Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? We don't really see it in English, but the words notice and foreigner in Hebrew are very similar. They're essentially one letter different. And uh, notice describes somebody you're already familiar with, and foreigner describes somebody who's unfamiliar, not a family member, not an Israelite. And in effect, Ruth is saying to Boaz, why have you noticed the unnoticed? So there's sort of a play on words here. That actually happens a lot in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers were really, really creative. The New Testament guy's literal. He did this, he did this, he did this, show up. You know, that kind of thing. Old Testament, very poetic, all sorts of things going on. Really, really good with words. So he says, why have you noticed her? She says to Boaz, why have you noticed the unnoticed? And Boaz answers her in verse 11. He tells her, he's already heard all about her faithfulness. 
I think it's really interesting here. I mean, this is clearly the small town. And it says, you know, all the women were stirred up when Ruth rose. You know, I used to pastor in South Alabama. And I learned over time that uh, if I told one of the older ladies in the congregation something, pretty much about 20 minutes, all the older ladies knew exactly what I had said, good or bad. And I didn't understand that at first, but when I figured it out, man, that's like faster than the Internet. You know, I mean, I definitely use that to my advantage. One phone call, got all these key people. They knew what was going on. It was awesome. But I think Boaz's words, it's way beyond that. This is the first positive thing that's happened to Ruth. Everything up to now has been negative. You know, she's lost the head of the clan, her father-in-law. She's lost her husband. She's lost her brother-in-law. She's now moved to a new unfamiliar place where she's probably not welcome. She's a foreigner, an alien. In fact, most of this book from now on calls her Ruth the Moabite. You know, just so you won't forget. And yet, Boaz says, I've heard about you. I've heard about your faithfulness. I've heard about how you care for your mother-in-law. We've heard about you. It's the first cheerful thing, positive thing, that's happened to her since her husband died uh, back in Moab. She's faced widowhood. She's had to leave her land and her people. She's facing poverty swallowing her pride to work in the field. And so this kind reception, the hands of Boaz, is a landmark moment. It's really a turning point in the book. And Boaz's words, his whole attitude of acceptance and caring had to be a great encouragement uh, to Ruth. And whenever one steps out into certain fields, or in this case, uncertain fields, living by faith that God will provide, it's always a blessing when God actually does provide. And like Ruth's case, God usually provides in ways completely unexpected. Boaz has lifted Ruth up, restored some of her honor, accepted her with incredible kindness. And not only does he lift up her spirits, but he lifts her up to the Lord. In verse 12, he prays for her. So third, we see her spiritual needs are met. He prays, first of all, that Ruth be repaid and rewarded by God. Boaz recognizes the tremendous faithfulness of Ruth. He asks God to recognize it as well. God rewards people who live by faith and who live by grace in his providence. However, we also need to understand the proper reward for obedience to God's word is the relationship that it brings about with God. God's reward for us doesn't have to come in terms of wealth. But biblically, it comes in terms of blessing. It doesn't mean blessing can't be financial. But it means it's not usually financial. And so when you hear those word reward, you know, we're conditioned to think money. But that's not what they would have heard. They would have heard blessing. And it's the blessing of being filled with God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit showing itself in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, what better reward could there be for Ruth's commitment than to receive love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? 
You know, most of us look at that list and we're kind of in the, yeah, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> There's a few here that don't quite show up. But it shows up for Ruth. And Boaz not only asks for God's blessing upon Ruth, but he recognizes that her faithfulness is ultimately a faithfulness to God. And she's already demonstrated that. He commends Ruth to God, for she's already come under the Lord's protection, not just his. He prays in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This imagery of coming under God's wings of refuge is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. Five times in the Psalms, God's wings are used to describe a place of safety, a place of restoration, a place of stillness, and of peace, a place of help, and a place of hope. Safety, restoration, refreshment, stillness, peace, relaxation, help, hope, all used to describe what you receive when you take refuge under the wings of God. And so Ruth's needs are met physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But little did Boaz know when he prayed in verse 12 that he would become the answer to that prayer. As Mark alluded, that comes next week. So first we see the providence of God. Second, we see the protection and the provision of Boaz and third, we see the response to God's provision. The response to God's provision, starting at verse 18. It says, And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw uh, what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Now remember, she brought home two weeks' wages. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I had worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And that'll become really a big deal. But again, more for next week. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. We see she's provided for, and she's protected. And how do Ruth and Naomi respond to this incredible generosity of Boaz? Well, the two widows remind us that one part of faithfulness to God is thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. I imagine if Ruth had gone off to glean in the fields, Naomi probably had some anxious moments, probably wondering how Ruth was doing, how the day was going for I imagine... Uh, she worried if Ruth had been well-received, are the field workers uh, treating her fairly? I imagine Naomi stopped several times that day to pray for Ruth's safety and her success. And so when Ruth finally arrives home with this big sack of barley, Naomi can hardly believe her eyes. She can see how much 
grain Ruth has gathered, and she knew that gleaners never brought home that much grain in one day. It would be amazing if she had the two pounds, because that would be like she was getting paid, like one of the reapers. More likely, she would normally bring home like half a pound. And Ruth comes waltzing through the front door with 29 pounds. It's like, I got the groceries. Can you help me unload them? You may have heard that in your house, perhaps. And not only that, she says, and by the way, I have some food here left over from lunch. It's already been cooked. Gleaners never come home with food that's already been cooked and prepared. So Naomi asks, verse 19, where did you glean today? This is amazing. Where have you worked? But before Ruth can answer, Naomi adds something. She gives thanks for their benefactor. Without yet knowing her identity, she exclaims, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she asked God to bless this man because of the generosity that he's shown. Naomi's first response is not to find out the details of Ruth's day, or even to start eating despite her own hunger, but rather her first response is to thank God. Second, notice the emphasis in the passage on kindness. Verse 20, Naomi says, May you be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, whose hesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi is thankful for the Lord's kindness to them, shown in the kindness of Boaz. This is the word hesed that we learned about last week. If you weren't here, go back and, and listen to that sermon. We spent a lot more time on it. But hesed means steadfast love, everlasting kindness. It's often used to characterize God's relationship with his people. And back in chapter 1, it's the word that Naomi used in her prayer for Ruth and Orpah. And once again, Naomi recognizes that the Lord is behind events here. And she's so grateful for his acts on their behalf, which leads her to the response of blessing. Of blessing. Another thing to notice here about her response, twice, verse 19 and verse 20, she asks God to bless Boaz. She's asking God to be as generous to Boaz as Boaz was generous to them. She believed that his kindness, his hesed, merited a reward from God because Boaz's loving kindness is an earthly example of God's loving kindness. Proverbs 22.9 expresses the truth of her feelings uh, well. It says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Now Naomi is asking God to make that happen. In essence, she's commending God, or commending Boaz to God for praise. Her prayer is a letter of commendation about Boaz sent to the Lord. To paraphrase it a little bit, what she's saying is, Lord, let me call your attention to something this man Boaz did. Lord, you really ought to do something special for him because of it. It's another example of how to be thankful by commending someone to God in prayer. That kind of prayer is like a special letter to God, calling God's attention to someone who has helped us. It asks God specifically to bless that person. It asks God to reward that person for the kindness that they have shown to us. So the question is, who do you need to commend to God in prayer? 
Perhaps it's someone who has done something special for you. Perhaps it's for an employer or employees. Certainly it would include your family, your spouse, your children, your parents, grandparents, grandchildren, even siblings. Whomever and whatever the reason, a prayer of commendation asking for God's blessing on another is actually a way to give thanks. And third, another way to respond to the kindness of God is simply by enjoying what he's given you. Somebody's not enjoying what God has given. Um, but this third thing to notice here about Naomi's response, she thanks God without regard for the circumstances. She still doesn't know the details of everything that happened, just that Boaz went out of his way to be kind to Ruth. And what he said to her, how he treated her, she knows he's just been kind. She doesn't know the particulars. You know, she hasn't asked, give me all the details. She's simply very thankful, and she thanks God for this kindness, regardless of how it comes about. And then she models this other important response to God's hesed, to God's kindness, and that's faithfulness, whatever the circumstances. Boaz has given Ruth uh, his protection and his provision uh, through his permission for her to continue gleaning in his fields. We see in verse 23 it says, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth faithfully follows the instructions of both Boaz and Naomi. And in so doing, they're good examples for us of this last lesson. They enjoyed the gifts God gave them. They could have suspected ulterior motives on the part of Boaz and acted suspiciously. Why has he done this for us? Why is he bending over backwards uh, you know, for us when he doesn't have to? What does he really want? But Ruth and Naomi have no such suspicion. They could have been embarrassed by his generosity, doesn't tell us that the other gleaners walked away with 29 pounds. Even the reapers didn't walk away with 29 pounds. They could have felt unworthy of his kindness. You know, it's very true of us. We're coming to Christmas, and there's going to be a lot of gift giving. And most of you love to give gifts, but you're not so good at receiving them. Most of us need to be better at receiving them. You know, we more want to give somebody and see their reaction when they open what we got them. But sometimes we need to be just a lot more fun and enjoy what they've gotten for us. And I think we see some of that here in Ruth. God has showered us with blessings as well. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what happens inside the walls of your home. Well probably know more than you want me to know. But I don't know everything. But God has given us family and friends and a church and a beautiful world. He's surrounded us with lots of love, even when we don't feel like it. And one way to show our gratitude to God is by enjoying what he's given us. Granted, like Ruth and Naomi, we don't deserve it. And we're probably unworthy of such kindness from the Lord. But that shouldn't keep us from enjoying what God has given us to enjoy. And most of all, he's given us himself, and he wants us to take enjoyment in him. What's the chief end of man? To 
the first purpose, the first duty of all people to in glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're, we understand the glorify part because He's God, we're not. Get that. The enjoy part, you know, that, that's for people that have known God a long time. You know, I'm still working on that. The, uh, God wants us to enjoy Him. He wants us to be satisfied in Him. So we're given a list here of how to be thankful, how to respond to God's blessing. Give thanks for what He and His kindness has given us, whatever that is, by praying for those that He's used in our lives, commending them to God, asking God's blessing on them in return, and by enjoying what He has given us, not being weighed down by our circumstances, but recognizing that God's over all things, and His desire is for us to enjoy what He gives us, particularly the gift of Himself. And to do those things is to be truly grateful. And be, to be truly grateful is to show faithfulness to God in everyday life. After all, God's still at work. God's still at work. Do you remember how this passage started in the part in chapter 1? It started with a lament of Naomi, who said back in chapter 1, verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So Ruth and bitter Naomi come home and settle in Bethlehem. But here in chapter 2, the loving kindness of God, the steadfast love of God, the hesed of God becomes so obvious that even Naomi sees it. There are signs of hope because God works under the surface. That's what the book of Ruth teaches you. You must never lose hope. No matter what's going on in your life, God is doing 10,000 things for his glory, and you're good, even when he appears to be absent, even when he appears to be silent, even when you think he appears not to be listening. Recently, John Piper said, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three or four of them. I love that quote. I love it because I think it's true. One of the great things about the book of Ruth, you put it up next to Jonah or Genesis or almost any other Old Testament book. And if you know how to read, you'll see it almost immediately. There's nothing in the book of Ruth that's miraculous. There's no miracles. There's no dreams. There's no visions. There's no words from God in her head. This is a book for people who look around their life and they see absolutely no dramatic answers to prayer. No dramatic events of any sort. They see nothing but mundane days and hard times. And the book of Ruth is trying to say that in the mundane days and the hard times, God's still at work. He's still there. He's still at work, working in 10,000 ways even though you don't see it. And you have to learn to see the signs of hope that God's still at work even if those signs are hidden under the surface. When Naomi comes back, she says, I'm empty. And she walks back into Bethlehem with who? With Ruth. This incredible treasure that God has put into her life. This woman whose love and courage is incredible, who's going to change her life and Boaz's life and bring them into the line of the Messiah. She's just walked back into the village with this incredible treasure. And what does she say to her friends? I've come back empty. 
I mean, even her friends have to be saying, if you're empty, who's this? And maybe Ruth is sitting there saying, what am I, chopped liver? What do you mean you came back empty? You know what the lesson is? Because Naomi has an agenda for what she thinks God should be doing, and because God's agenda is not her agenda, she can't see the signs of hope that God has put in her life, has put right in front of her, right next to her. She hasn't seen the great things that God has already done. Some of you are in the same place right now. Absolutely in the same place. You have an agenda for God, and things aren't going your way. And you're blind to the incredible things that God has already put into your life, or the things that God has kept in your life, and you just don't see it. And you won't see it, and you have no hope. And this book is teaching that in the mundane days and the hard times, under the surface you see the signs of hope that God's still at work. Ruth just happened onto the field of Boaz. I think that's probably my favorite verse in this chapter. It just happened that she found the one guy that she had to marry in order for the Messiah to be born into the world. It just happened. We call that providence. It teaches us that God loves to work in the mundane days where you can't see it. Providence teaches us that God loves to work in the hard times where you can't see it. I heard a great quote this week. Anthony Lane's a film critic for the New Yorker magazine. And he wrote an interesting review of The Lord of the Rings, the book, not the movie. And he says, one of the messages of The Lord of the Rings is that the quiet, scruffy guy in the back of the pub that you just pick up a casual conversation with is the future king of the world, descended through 51 generations of absolute royalty. So be nice to everybody. You never know. That's a message of Christmas. Don't you see, how many thrones are there in the world? Not that many. How many mangers are there in the world? Lots and lots and lots. Too many to count. God comes through mangers, not thrones. The message here is, don't look out in your life and say, I don't see any answers to prayer. I don't know what God's doing. These are the mundane days. These are the hard times. God has abandoned me. God has given up on me. God has left me empty. Here's Naomi. God's abandoned me. He's brought me back empty. And Ruth is clinging to her. But when Ruth is clinging to her, God is clinging to her. God is clinging to her even though she can't see it. And God is clinging to you. If you believe in him, God is clinging to you. God never lets you go. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Can you feel that hope? Please know there's hope in every life. No matter how mundane the days or how hard the times, there are signs of hope that God's still at work. In many ways, Ruth chapter 2 is the account of how God takes empty people and makes them full again. And in doing this, we find a connection between Ruth's story and the Christmas story that we know so well. In the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings, we find it in Luke chapter 1. Amazing song. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring together. Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things. Part of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is to fill empty people with not just good things, but the very best things. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness, holiness, love, kindness, gratefulness, and glory. Christmas hymns invite us to come to Bethlehem, to come to Ruth and Boaz's city, to come to David's royal city, to come to Jesus' birthplace. They invite us to come and behold Jesus and to worship and adore him, and they call us not to look just to his first coming, but to look forward to his coming again in power and in glory. And we recognize that at the heart when we pray you just say the Lord's Prayer, God's kingdom come. We pray actually that God's kingdom would come. It's not just a catchphrase. Our catechism teaches that when we pray that, we are asking that Satan's kingdom be destroyed and the kingdom of grace be advanced. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and to establish his reign forever and ever. He comes to fill us with good things. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.